Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. I like to drop into a core Buddhist teaching and investigate how all the wisdom that's packed into some of the Buddha's early uh, teachings. Uh, this one is called the Two Arrows teaching, and I think when we investigate it from a contemporary lens, we start to see just some uh, profound insights that are also very well, as we'll see, borne out by contemporary neuropsychology and whatnot. So first I'm going to read you the teaching, and then I'm going to well, I'm going to piece by piece unpack it and sh and sort of investigate what's in there. And then at the end, we'll, we'll have a meditation that's based on some of these insights. So here we go. When a naive person, and by naive, the Buddha's not saying dumb or uh, uneducated. He's just meaning someone who hasn't yet developed a uh, spiritual practice where they've developed mindfulness and uh, some other tools. So when the naive person has a painful feeling, they lament with self-pity, and so they feel two pains. One is physical, and the other is mental, as if they were first shot with an arrow, that's the physical pain, and then chose to shoot themselves with a second arrow so that they would feel even more distress. When the naive individual has a painful feeling, they immediately resist it. They become obsessed with it for they're trying to get rid of it. They seek to escape the painful feelings by craving anything that makes them feel good immediately. Why? They fail to understand that there's another way to respond to painful feelings. And they don't understand that all experience arises and passes on its own. And furthermore, they don't understand that short-term pleasures have long-term consequences, i.e. drawbacks. So, uh, and that there are other ways to respond. When the wise individual has a painful feeling, on the other hand, they don't lament with self-pity. They don't become distraught. They only feel the pain of the first arrow. They don't shoot themselves with the second arrow. So in other words, they feel the physical pain, but the emotional, or I should not even say that, they, <clears throat> the secondary responses we have to pain don't come into effect. This person understands that all experiences arise and pass on their own. And in other words, we don't necessarily need to do anything about it. That pain and discomfort will pass. Furthermore, they under, the wise person understands that alluring short-term pleasures have drawbacks and that there are other ways to respond. The wise individual feels um, the pain that the uh, naive does, but they don't identify with it. They're detached from it. They observe it. And this is the very difference, the very distinction between the wise and the naive. So... There's a lot in there, and I'm going to now unpack it and try to explain from a contemporary sp perspective all the, um, the, the really wondrous insights that are found in this teaching. So 
First statement, when a naive person has a painful feeling, they lament with self-pity. They feel two pains, one physical, the other mental. Now this is pointing to one of the key foundations of Buddhist thought, which is that there are different kinds of distress. Dukkha dukkha is, uh, besides being redundant, is um, what the in the Pali Canon of the Buddha referred to inevitable physical pain that we can do nothing about. On the other hand, there's also Dukkha Sankara, which is the emotional response to pain. The all that we add on top of it, the thoughts, the taking it personally, the uh, resisting, the attempts to do anything we can to address it, the uh, the entire sense of my pain is unique and so forth. So let's take a step back from what we are step forward to what we now know today. So pain in and of itself is a uh, if it's physical pain, it's essentially a activation of tissue damage or some kind of uh, issue in the body. And there's various systems that locates where the pain is for the brain. Not just your nerves, but also your circulatory system and your immune system actually have essentially like location information. And all of these systems are integrated at the brain stem. And the brain stem, once it has a vague sense of the location, ferrets it off to the secretary of the executive secretary of the brain, the thalamus. And then that sends it to a region, two regions in your brain, your insula and somatosensory, which is a little map and of your body. And that area creates the sense of pain that you experience. When you stub your toe, you're not actually feeling the tissue damage. What you are experiencing is a recreation of the event up in your brain. So everything we've experienced is a simulacrum or a, a kind of virtual reality where we recreate the physiological, it's essentially a guess that the brain does of what I should feel when I stub my toe. Now, that's just the physical sensation associated with tissue damage that's created in that region. But then there's a secondary not secondary, I should say another immediate response. When you experience something that causes pain, now this could be tissue damage, like you've suddenly been hit by someone or suddenly you've been struck by a car or whatever, your, all the visual information, the contextual information is read by two regions of the brain that are essentially your uh, midbrain and anterior cingulate cortex, and they create a response that's immediate, and you have no choice about this response either. So if you suddenly are attacked by a bear, your midbrain will activate what's called a dorsal dive, and you'll faint, because you don't want to be present when you're being attacked by a bear. You want to essentially play dead. This is not a choice. This is not something you do conscious this is automatically activated by your midbrain. But this activation can also be created by a social interpersonal event. So for example, 
Suppose you get news that an attachment figure, somebody you love, has been badly injured. You might faint using the exact same structures of the brain, have the exact same response. People very often, when they hear that a loved one has been in an accident, will faint. It's both cases, the fainting of being attacked by a bear or the fainting of finding out that a loved one has uh, something terrible has happened to a loved one will activate what's called a dorsal dive. Your parasympathetic nervous system will activate. All of the blood will flow away from your brain. Every muscle tone in your body will go limp and you'll lose consciousness. You're, you'll go into just a complete parasympathetic override. But if it's a situation where you could survive, if it's a situation where your life or the life of someone you love is not in peril, another response, a sympathetic response will kick in where you'll become hypervigilant. You'll suddenly be prone to action. All of your attention will be fixated and the upper part of your body will be tense. You'll go into a startle response where your the vagal nerves here, your chest will contract and your belly will contract and you'll get into uh, essentially uh, this very painful contracted state of I have to do something. The hairs on the back of your neck, you'll start to sweat. And all of that is also what we experience as pain. Whether it's from you've, you've, you're in a situation, you go into, your, if suppose you're in a day job, you go into an office, somebody calls you in, and you might at that very moment anticipate that you're gonna be fired from the job it will activate the same exact dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, which will then in turn activate your sympathetic nervous system. And you'll suddenly, your heart will race, your body will contract, and you'll be in pain, a kind of what's called emotional pain. The emotional response though, that's secondarily to all of this, it's not inevitable, is again, all of the thoughts the reactions, all the choice that we have in the aftermath or the ingrained habitual responses. It's interesting to note that even the physiological pain we experience after a, a blow to the stomach, a shock, or a negative event like being, having somebody suddenly break up with us is completely subjective. Individuals who um, have tendencies to catastrophize, I, I have anxious attachment or have had unreliable attention in, in childhood or will lose access to a caregiver, on average experience twice as much physical pain than people who do not have that. And you can literally test this by giving people shocks and people who have had insecure attachment structures, especially those associated with anxious, will flinch and will feel more pain than someone who is secure, doesn't catastrophize, doesn't, never had a histrionic uh, tendencies in childhood where the only way they got secure attention from a caregiver was when they were sick or ill and so forth. Those people will feel in the tests more pain. Interestingly, too, people will create physical pain when there's no tissue damage present at all. Chemo 
pay, cancer patients, if you tell them that you're giving them chemo, they will experience extreme nausea, even though you're giving them a placebo. If you tell somebody who's had um, uh, a toothache that you've numbed them and that the numbing effect is taking, is going into effect, they will feel less pain, even though you haven't shot them up with an analgesic. If you tell somebody, oh, this is a good one. There was a, a wonderful case I read about where a butcher slipped and caught his arm in a meat hook and was in excruciating agony. And when the people came and ran and responded to his, his extreme pain and his, you know, his just overwhelming distress, they saw that the meat hook did not touch any part of his body. It just went through the sleeve of, of the coat he was wearing. But because he fully expected the meat hook to, to have pierced him, he literally believed and he, his brain created the pain. So essentially, once again, pain is a recreation of an expectation or a real signal that something has gone wrong, either internally in the body or interpersonally. A loved one breaks up with us, the sudden uh, loss of a job, the sudden feeling that close friends are not including us. If you'd like to read more about this, how the both the physical pain and the social pain systems are exactly the same. There's a great book called Social by Lieberman and Eisenberger that, that go into, I think it's just Lieberman who did the book, that go into the structures of how we experience emotional, this inevitable pain from social events. Interestingly enough, if you want to give somebody an analgesic to pain, studies show that if you are in the room with somebody you care about, that you feel secure with, and you give that person a shock, you will experience significantly less pain than somebody who is not with somebody they love or is a, a friend. So just social context has significant analgesic effects. On the, as well, interestingly enough, if somebody is depressed <coughs> from social rejection, abandonment, uh, if you give them, instead of an antidepressant, you give them Tylenol, they show significant uh, reduction of anxiety and emotional pain. Because once again, both systems share the exact same highways and circuits. But it's important to note that these inevitable responses are, which are deeply uh, sort of inevitable, there's absolutely no conditioning to them. The secondary response, the secondary emotional response, which is all we add on to it, which is in Buddhism called Sankara, this is inevitable. And this is something that we can do something about. And furthermore, uh, the amount of pain we feel due to these add-ons, the taking it personally, which isolates us and makes it feel that other people won't understand the pain that we're going through, is in many ways uh, overwhelms the actual physiological pain, which passes very quickly in some cases. 
So here's the next line. When a naive individual has a painful feeling, they resist, they become obsessed with it for they are trying to get rid of it. Now, what the hell is this all about? Um, this brings us up to a famous observation in contemporary psychology by a guy named Dan Wegner and others known as the ironic process. The ironic process is very simple. The more you try to push something out of awareness, the more it rebounds back into awareness. So trying to repress anything, a thought, a physical pain, a song in your head, uh, earworm, anything you try to push out of awareness is far, far more redundant and far, far more intrusive than if you simply allowed it to be in consciousness, welcomed it, and then brought other stimuli into your attention. So in Dan Wegner's famous test, he told two groups of people, uh, one group, think about polar bears whenever you want. The other group, don't think about polar bears. He, had, he put in front of them buttons and asked them to push the button every time they thought about polar bears. Well, guess what? The people who were told not to and thus tried to resist it wound up thinking about it significantly more than you could possibly imagine. In other words, there's a rebound effect to trying to push anything out of awareness. That's why no matter how hard we try not to think about something, guess what? You will think about it. This is universal. Um, so, um, that's the ironic Russell. Also, here's another thing that's kind of interesting. Um, when you activate the, uh, when you avoid something, when you try to push something away, when you try to sidestep or evade anything that's conscious, there's a little part of your amygdala called the basal lateral. And the basal lateral's job is to learn what to be frightened of, what to have an emotional response to. Anytime you try to avoid someone or avoid a situation or avoid, like suppose you have a roommate, you're having a little conflict with that roommate, and so you, you wait until they leave before you go out of you know, your bedroom, <laughs> and then you go and have your coffee, or when you come home, you try to get in the apartment room, and then you get to the you know, bedroom, and then you know, when you see them, just go high, but then try to do whatever and not, not acknowledge and work through the issue. The basal lateral amygdala lights up and starts to associate that person with threat. And in the future, the more you encounter that person, the more you will have a fear response and the more uncomfortable it will be. So, for example, if somebody falls off a bike, as we all have heard, if they don't get back on it, if they avoid getting back on the bike, when they see the bike two weeks later and they start to pick it up, the basal lateral, because they've avoided it, will learn and say, oh my God, being on a bike is a life-threatening situation. Your heart will race, you'll go into a sympathetic response, you'll start to flood with cortisol and adrenaline, and you'll be exceptionally uncomfortable. So whatever we resist, try to avoid or push away, 
not only does it rebound more, but every time we encounter it, it will be increasingly more emotionally overwhelming. Next line. <laughs> they seek to escape painful feelings by craving anything that makes them feel good immediately. <clears throat> so uh, when the, B, the basal lateral is activated and the sympathetic nervous system is switched on, there's actually exonic connections to another area of your brain. You don't have to memorize any of this. It's just for the one other probably neuroscience geek that I throw this in. But the ventral tegmental lights up and that's the dopamine reward system. So anything in your past that allowed you to momentarily, quickly remove the pain, that's what your entire brain will lock into and there'll be a release of dopamine which will reward you to, if you, for instance, uh, feel uh, the stress of an impending interpersonal conflict, it might activate the ventral tegmental and you'll unconsciously remember, oh, in my past, whenever I've had uncomfortable social interactions, when I just had seven beers, everything <laughs> went, I'm just talking for myself. <laughs> I've been in recovery for 25 years, but I can well remember my strategies. Um, so uh, it will activate an immediate act action that will essentially uh, orient us towards a way to get rid of it and it will create dopamine which will encourage us or almost impel us to pursue that um, that action that's associated that either that substance or process behavior so let's give some examples um, you come home late at night uh, tired not feeling well seen throughout the day. You're, you're in an empty apartment, uh, a studio apartment maybe, there's no one else there, and maybe uh, there'll be this feeling of loneliness that you might feel, or lack of being mattering in the minds of someone else. Then you'll start to feel a strange impulsion to do a process behavior that in the past made you feel loved, seen, and important. So for some people that might be emotional eating. They might start to eat because in their childhood, eating was the time when they were fed was the time they felt loved and taken care of. So they recreate the emotional state of I'm important to someone else by starting to eat. Or they could do an action that makes them feel important. Some people will seek out porn. Other people will shop. shop. Other people will turn on Netflix to create the sense that other people are in their life. All of these strategies for a very short term activate the release of dopamine, which removes the emotion, inevitable emotional pain of loneliness. And for a while we'll feel better but the emotional pain doesn't go anywhere. Simply because we're repressing something doesn't mean we've alleviated our loneliness or lack of connection. And in fact, very often after people enact one of these process behaviors, some people will be gambling, some people will always go to the gym 
and have to engage in cardio as a way to uh, remove an emotional pain or to feel that they're doing something with their life. So no matter what we do to get rid of pain or emotional wounds, they'll still be there. They need to be essentially resolved, felt, processed. Now, sometimes physical pain will pass, but any emotional wound will not that's been repressed. <clears throat> what do we crave to get rid of as quickly as possible physical and emotional pain? Well, there's a list the Buddha gave us. It's called uh, the four types of clinging. The first is we'll seek short-term pleasant sensations. That's drugs, food, sex, uh, could be um, anything that has like a pleasant physical sensation associated with it. Some people will seek out distracting routines. So for some people that's going to the gym and working out, for other people it might be a, a, um, an ingrained process behavior like gambling, or uh, some form of uh, <clears throat> uh, any activity that essentially numbs for a short term after a painful loss or a painful a, a physical experience. Some of us will get lost in views and opinions about the world and about our life and how unfair it is and how we're being victimized and how what why is this happening to me and that of course, cognition is left hemispheric. The left hemisphere has very little uh, axonic connections to the insula, so it has very little feelings of the body. So the more you think, the more you are essentially repressing awareness of the emotional pain that needs to be experienced and felt to resolve. Lastly, there's a tava upadana, which is self-pity and self-oriented thinking. When many of us go through a breakup um, or have a loss of a job or we try to go to an interview and we don't do very well or any painful interpersonal experience, we immediately drape it in stories of there's something about me that's failing. Not, oh, this happens to everyone, but something about me that's uh, doomed to fail or unique or different. And therefore that, that add-on of selfing or personalizing experiences, it's known, creates one, isolation. Isolation adds more pain. The more you feel isolated, the more the anterior cingulate activates, the more stress. So actually, every time we interpret an event in terms of there's something about me that's failing, not good enough, unlovable for, by other people's, the more, essentially, the more discomfort, the more distress we'll experience. There was a famous study of college students that failed the test and they just essentially interviewed all students that failed in this college that failed midterms and 
they found that those who recovered the quick, quickest, who were the most resilient and didn't have any lasting emotional damage, were the ones who didn't blame themselves, who essentially thought, oh, my teacher was shit, <laughs> <laughs> or I didn't get enough sleep, or you know the textbook was incomprehensible. So long as they didn't attribute it to themselves, they didn't have any lasting emotional wounds from the event. But anybody in the study that did attribute it to themselves, I'm not good at math, I don't take tests well, I, 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 those were the ones who had lasting emotional wounds from the event. It creates a feedback loop every time after, this is the second arrow, every time after an event, we drape it in a narrative that in some way attributes the experience to myself. I am uh, anxious, depressed. I am uh, subject to chronic pain. My experience, no one else will know. I'm unique. My, my situation is worse. The more we self-pathologize, the more pain we will experience and the more distress we will experience. The simple assuming that any negative experience is not about us, but is shared by countless millions of people in just slightly different variations, allows us to develop resilience and essentially enacts the, what we call in Buddhism the removal of the second arrow. <clears throat> Lastly, before we meditate, the last bit, the Buddha notes that the alluring short-term pleasures have drawbacks and that there are other ways to respond. So for example, uh, one of my favorites is catastrophizing. Uh, catastrophizing is in some ways it can for many people seem a very natural response to unresolved or un, uh, 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 drama in life where there's no clear resolution uh, or where there's a lot of possible outcomes. Some people due to, of course, early attachment wounds or early insecure attachment have a tendency to catastrophize and to essentially, what that means is visualize and literally ideate the worst possible outcome. Not a, a likely outcome, not a good outcome, certainly not. The worst possible outcome. And the underlying emotional reasoning seems to be that when you parse it out, People tend to believe that in catastrophizing or visualizing the worst possible outcome, that they are somehow more prepared, that they're somehow doing due diligence. And there's even sometimes magical thinking that if I visualize the worst outcome, it's like the sacrificial goat, it won't happen to me. Now, of course, catastrophizing uh, has great drawbacks to it. Number one, it doesn't actually protect you from anything bad. So it's in no form in any way preparation. It doesn't allow you, it doesn't allow you to be more on guard or vigilant. Two, 
while you're catastrophizing, you're in distress, and very often the amount of catastrophizing is far worse than any negative outcome that might come about anyway. Three, you might very well do much better in facing a bad outcome without having overthought about it because you'll have a much more fluid, less essentially isolated response to it. You'll be more likely to reach out for help or talk to somebody. If you catastrophize about it, you'll more likely develop that selfing tendency and believe that this is about you and no one will be able or be interested to help you. Another example is self-consciousness. People believe that if they essentially become hyper aware of everything they do in social settings, they won't make any mistakes. Another example is of conf uh, conflict avoidance. We live in an e epidemic of conflict avoidance now that everybody communicates by texting. People, when they have interpersonal wounds, uh, where they feel somebody has uh, not uh, shown up or somebody is asking too much of them, people will essentially try to avoid the person rather than working through any interpersonal issue. But of course, uh, and the idea is, if I go into a situation where there might be conflict, it could be really awkward and unpleasant, and that's really bad. So the idea is if we avoid conflict, it will make life easier. Now, all three of these strategies fail spectacularly. <laughs> Number one, the more we practice conflict avoidance, the smaller life becomes and the less populous our life becomes. The more we are inclined to avoid difficult interactions, the shorter the relationships of friends and family members and partners will be, because all relationships depend on the ability to show up and work through misunderstandings and conflict. The avoidance of conflict is directly implicated in people who have difficulty maintaining lasting relationships. Worry and catastrophizing makes your life so much worse, doesn't protect you from anything. And the more self-conscious you are in any situation, the more you are less likely to use the dorsal lateral region of your brain, which allows you to be creative, interested in other people, to show visible signs of engagement. The more you are caught up in essentially ventral medial thinking, the more you will create faces that are driven that essentially express disinterest and so the person that you're with will think that you're aloof and are uncaring or are essentially dismissing them so all these strategies backfire and in all these cases there's a far better solution one is to simply stop and feel and sit with the emotional discomfort and to one develop self-soothing strategies where we can, while we allow physical pain or emotional pain to be present, to bring into awareness other stimuli so that we don't try to repress it or we don't fixate on it. We actually learn to essentially water down the fixation on pain and thus what happens is people experience less pain. 
But the even greater analgesic is the more we be, we stick with the physical pain rather than drape it in stories of why is this happening to me, the more likely we are then subsequently to find someone disclose our emotional wounds or our discomfort or our feelings of loneliness and despair. And the more you do that, that has an immediate analgesic effect. It switches on your dorsal lateral anterior cingulate cortex, which raises endorphins so your body immediately feels better. It raises serotonin levels so you don't have a mood drop. The most important thing to do in any situation that is painful is to connect and share that. <sighs> so that's what's in that Buddhist teaching. And now we're going to meditate where we're going to put these strategies <clears throat> into place. So find a really comfortable seated position. Or could somebody pass a cushion up to the front? Yeah, thanks. Thank you. <coughs> so, just uh, <coughs> closing the eyes and just allow your body to settle into whatever feels like a, the most comfortable position you possibly can. Don't try to uh, sculpt consciously your body into a right posture that you've heard is right, I should say. Just allow the sensations of your body especially find a sensation associated with your tailbone or your sit bone where you make con contact with the ground and then find a sensation associated with the shoulders or the uh, uh, middle of the neck and then find the sensation with the top of your head and try to bring all those sensations into a good alignment. If that is too difficult to follow, no worries. Just take, the simplest way to do this is just to take your chin and lift it like you're looking at the top of a tall building. When you lift your head, it tends to realign your body naturally. Your uh, back tends to readjust to a better alignment. So the only effort we're going to put in, in terms of the body, right now at first, is just to keep the head from falling in front of the chest. That's all you need to do. And now we'll take a few breaths just to essentially send messages up to our midbrain saying, I am safe right now. Nothing bad is happening to me. I'm in a situation, a context, which is secure. And your midbrain will read your body. So we take a nice full in-breath, squinch the muscles in the face, and then breathe out through the mouth. 
and relax all the muscles in the face, especially focusing on encouraging the eyes to settle when the retinal eye, um, retinal muscles relax. That's the first way to inform your brain that there's no threats present. And then also we're going to release the jaw so there's no clenching. And take the corners of your mouth and stretch them as far apart as comfortable so you may, your mouth is very wide in a very neutral state so that there's no tendency to essentially contract. And then our second full in-breath through the nose and lift your shoulders up. Rotate them back to open up the chest and as you breathe out through the mouth, drop the shoulders and the arms are now lifeless limbs hanging from the torso like limbs falling off a trunk of a tree and when you open up your chest you engage the vagal break which slows down respiration reduces blood pressure by opening up your arteries and very very salient messages up to the insula to the and midbrain that say I'm okay nothing's going on if you were under threat your body would be contracted and tight in a startle state and then lastly <coughs> the third breath in this series expand your belly like you're pulling the in-breath through into your abdomen your abdomen is just expanding comfortably and then as you breathe out through the mouth softening <coughs> if you observe people when they're under <coughs> in chronic stress whether when they've been <coughs> activated you'll find that they breathe through their chest you see them breathing gulping in air you'll see all the breath is in the essentially the upper rib cage but if you look at somebody who's very relaxed who's settled in maybe someone who's lying comfortably on a couch reading a magazine in a relaxing peaceful environment you'll notice that the breath is articulated physically by their abdomen raising and lowering so what we want to do is focus on abdominal breathing which means at first in the meditation just slightly exaggerate, exaggerate the movements of the breath in the belly And lastly, while keeping the shoulders open, the belly soft, the breathing into the belly, relaxing and encouraging the 
eyes to settle behind the eyelids. We also want to focus on exhalation. Exhalation releases both nicotinic and acetylcholine. Nicotinic acid is euphoric in a very slight way. Acetylcholine relaxes the sympathetic nervous system. So you want to, as all Buddhist monks will tell you, you want to focus on your exhalations. Really make your exhalations longer than the in-breath. Really focus on your belly swelling and subsiding and the long subsiding on the exhalation. So let's gently lower awareness into the body from behind the eyes. You can still have a sense that consciousness is up in your head, but what we're trying to do is expand your sense of consciousness, awareness, so that now it's just not only up in your head behind your eyes, between your ears, but you feel it lowering into your throat. You feel it lowering into the chest. You start becoming aware of all the sensations. Those gentle sensations of muscles releasing or contracting, tensing and releasing. feeling of blood, circulation, random nerve firing, twitches, lowering into the sensations in the lower belly. This is a time to reconnect with the body and with your life. Most of our lives are thoughts and visualizations are based either on memories of past events or anticipations of future events. And so we live so much of our lives without any awareness of the 
body that's not only sustaining us, but your body is what expresses all the wisdom of your right hemisphere. All of your needs for attachment, security, care, all of the emotional events of your life are expressed through your body. And the more we disconnect from it, the more we try to live lives based on planning, figuring out, solving, the more our lives become unfulfilling the more we try to solve everything through accumulation or achievement reconnecting with the body reconnects us with the depth of experience the meaning of events it allows us to repair after interpersonal wounds and allows us to really celebrate connections. So just keep bringing your awareness back, even if a thought comes along that's totally natural for a thought to try to hijack. It's like, imagine awareness is now swimming beneath the surface and Thoughts are like bait on a hook. And the baits look really, really enticing, really interesting. Here's something I could really chew on. And so frequently we'll bite into the bait. And the next thing we'll know, we'll be lost in thought in a virtual reality far away. And our job is to disentangle, jump right back into the water of the body. There's nothing wrong when we get lost in thought. Each time we do, when we realize it, it's to be celebrated. There's nothing missing right now. There's nothing you're doing wrong. Everything you're experiencing is being experienced by others.
if at any time it feels uh, challenging to meditate, just stop meditating and just relax. Don't try to accomplish anything. Let go of whatever you're trying to achieve and just allow yourself just to sit and be with this moment without trying to be or experience anything. If the brain is jumpy or tired, just let it be jumpy or tired. Just allow yourself to be with your experience without trying to change it. So at this point, bring your mind to 
an interpersonal event that was unpleasant, distressing, The experience of rejection by someone we had yearned for either love or acceptance or kindness is generally will be the events that create the strongest physiological first arrow pain and will also then for many of us instigate the second arrow stories and clinging responses, clinging by means of seeking short-term addictive solutions. So think of an interpersonal event that was unkind, I felt rejecting. Bring your mind some image or representation of the event. The goal was to find first even the slightest somatic or physiological response, otherwise known as the first arrow. So you might visualize an experience of rejection by a loved one and you might immediately feel a sense of nausea in the throat, a heaviness in the chest or in the limbs, heaviness behind the eyes or maybe a like a feeling of contraction or just tightness in the stomach. The feeling of someone who we wanted to be loving and kind, but was cruel and different, rejecting, cold. Just finding where that first arrow response is and just staying with it. And you might notice a secondary, second arrow tendency to want to retell the story, to rehash or to, to add a sort of personal, frame it in a narrative A narrative that could be, why did this happen to me? How unfair? How could they? What did I do wrong? Essentially, why me? Or what was going on with them? And if you can find that impulse, just note it. Put it aside, 
bring your awareness back again once again to the just to the physical sensations If the brain really wants to wrap it in thought, storytelling, change the narrative. Change it to something that doesn't isolate you, that doesn't make it about you. Make the story, this happens to so many others, including myself. It's not about me. Other people have been mistreated, wounded, rejected, abandoned. None of this is mine. None of this is about me. This is simply another part of life. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the <coughs> bells and the cymbals. And uh, when you hear the sound, just take your time. Allow your eyes to look up just enough. Do it slowly so that you see the ground in front of you. And as always, the goal of transitioning from uh, meditation into external internal mindfulness is to not allow sight and thought to become so dominant in your awareness that you lose all awareness of your body always try to keep some connection with the belly the chest the face the circuit of the vagal nerve which expresses so much of our emotional wisdom the breath itself. <clears throat> 